0: Bob Murphy Show, Episode One Hundred Two. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, I want to delve into the so called uh, grievance studies hoax that came to light back in late 2018. I'm sure many of you, at least vaguely, remember what I'm talking about because there was something about it that just never quite sat right with me. And I didn't see in the various discussions whether the people were applauding it or deploring it. Uh, I didn't see people quite make the points that I want to flesh out here in this episode. So let me first just review the big picture To either refresh your memory or let you know about it for the first time in case you never heard about it. And then I'll jump into the analysis that I think has been lacking on it. So, believe it or not, I think the best introduction I can give to it is from a Vox article. And actually, I shouldn't say believe it or not. I mean, it's true that the people at Vox typically don't have my views on various political and economic issues. But when it comes to just trying to get the basics, of some topic, especially if it's a bit wonkish, actually Vox is a decent place to start because, you know, typically they'll at least, like I say, in terms of the internet wonkish discussions, will give you all the little facts you need just to be able to understand what the various talking heads are claiming. So in any event, this is from a uh, October 15th, 2018 article titled, The Controversy Around Hoax Studies and Critical Theory, comma, Explained. And of course, folks, all the links that you'll need if you want to delve deeper into this stuff will be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 102. So let me just start reading from this because again, like I say, this is a pretty good introduction. An argument for men self-penetrating with dildos to reduce transphobia. An ethnography of men who attend restaurants like Hooters. Research on rape culture among the dogs at Portland dog parks. These are all real articles published in real scholarly journals written by a group of three people, magazine editor Helen Pluckrose, mathematician James Lindsay, and philosopher Peter Boghossian. But if they sound to you like parodies of a certain style of academic research, you're right. Pluckrose, Lindsay, and Bogassian wrote and published the articles as part of a year-long hoax campaign targeting fields like gender studies. Pluckrose et al. wrote 20 papers and submitted them under fake names, or it says false names, to a variety of journals. By the time they ended the experiment in early October, seven of the 20 had been accepted for publication. In a lengthy write-up explaining the sting, the authors described their hoax as proof that fields focusing on identity—gender studies, queer studies, critical race studies, etc.—were corrupt, in quotation marks, to their core— Grievance studies, as they chose to refer to these fields, elevate politically fashionable nonsense over rigorous scholarship. Pluckrose et al. See them as a cancer on the university that needs to be excised. Okay, so that's a great introduction. And if you really want to get the full scoop, I'll also link to this, of course, you want to go to the uh, AREO, it's A-R-E-O is the name of the magazine, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly where these three who were doing this hoax project laid it out themselves as to what they were doing. And I'll read in a minute from that just to give you their perspective on it. So what happened is, I think it was somebody at the Wall Street Journal who had been doing a story on one of the published articles, I think, to like make fun of it or, you know, to to say, what's the deal with academia? And then that Wall Street Journal reporter got suspicious and then went and investigated and somehow realized and then wrote, you know, you wrote to the person, the the listed author of the article. And I, and, you know, said, hey, is this, is this a hoax? Or, you know, is this, for? and that's when they decided they didn't want to lie to the wall. So they just, you know, gave it up. And so that's when they went public to explain what their project had been. So let me just read a little bit from that. So this came, this was in October of 2018 where they went public with it. So here, I'll just read a little bit. So again, what I'm reading from right now is the article written by Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay, and Peter Bogassian. I hope I'm pronouncing Peter's last name correctly. The other one's pretty sure I got right as to what they were doing. And again, the only reason they went public at this point is because I think it was someone from the Wall Street Journal contacted them and basically said, you know, this looks suspicious to me. Is this what you guys are doing? And they didn't want to lie at that point. Um, So I'll just read. Selectively here from their essay, something has gone wrong in the university, especially in certain fields within the humanities. Scholarship based less upon finding truth and more upon attending to social grievances has become firmly established, if not fully dominant within these fields. And their scholars increasingly bully students, administrators, and other departments into adhering to their worldview. This worldview is not scientific and it is not rigorous. For many, this problem has been growing increasingly obvious, but strong evidence has been lacking. For this reason, the three of us just spent a year working inside the scholarship we see as an intrinsic part of this problem. We spent that time writing academic papers and publishing them in respected peer-reviewed journals associated with fields of scholarship loosely known as cultural studies or identity studies or critical theory because it is rooted in that postmodern brand of theory which arose in the late 60s. As a result of this work, we have come to call these fields grievance studies in shorthand because of their common goal of problematizing aspects of culture in minute detail in order to attempt diagnoses of power imbalances and oppression rooted in identity. Okay, so this is me talking now. The, the terms cultural studies, identity studies, or critical theory, I think are the ones that the actual practitioners themselves use. And gender studies, by the way, is, I believe, an element of identity studies, Uh, whereas these three who are doing the hoax, I think they coined the term grievance studies, or I don't know if they coined it, but I don't think that the practitioners themselves refer to that as grievance studies. I think that's what these people are calling it to sort of summarize, you know, all the thing that these all have in common is it's people who have a chip on their shoulder. They're, you know, an airing of grievances, as it were. I got a lot of problem with you white men. Okay. um, Back to their summary of what they're what they're doing here talking to the world. We undertook this project to study, understand and expose the reality of grievance studies which is corrupting academic research because open good faith conversation around topics of identity such as gender, race and sexuality and the scholarship that works with them is nearly impossible. Our aim has been to reboot these conversations. We hope this will give people especially those who believe in liberalism, progress, modernity, open inquiry and social justice a clear reason to look at the identitarian madness coming out of the academic and activist left and say, no, I will not go along with that. You do not speak for me. Okay, so this is an aside for me now. So they claim to actually be, I don't know if they use the word progressives or liberals, but my understanding is they certainly are not like fans of Rush Limbaugh, right? So I think they generally, I don't know if they call themselves leftists, but I've seen in interviews and so on that partly what they're doing is they're, they're alarmed at how people who should be their allies and who should stand for tolerance and, you know, diversity are actually and ironically and perversely extremely intolerant and want to stamp out anyone who doesn't conform to their narrow vision of what's true and so they're from their perspective like no actually you're stamping out free speech and open inquiry and tolerance and you know having a diversity of not just skin colors but also opinions or perspectives at least all right so that's partly where they're coming from so this is not like Dinesh D'Souza here okay moving down a little bit in their essay our approach is best understood as a kind of reflexive ethnography That is, we conducted a study of a peculiar academic culture by immersing ourselves within it, reflecting its output and modifying our understanding until we became outsiders within it. Our objective was to learn about this culture and establish that we had become fluent in its language and customs by publishing peer-reviewed papers in its top journals, which usually only experts in the field are capable of doing. And now I'm skipping down. While our papers are all outlandish or intentionally broken in significant ways, it is important to recognize that they blend in almost perfectly with others in the disciplines under our consideration. To demonstrate this, we needed to get papers accepted, especially by significant and influential journals. Merely blending in couldn't generate the depth necessary for our study, however. We also needed to write papers that took risks to test certain hypotheses, such that the fact of their acceptance itself makes a statement about the problem we're studying." Our paper writing methodology always followed a specific pattern. It started with an idea that spoke to our epistemological or ethical concerns with the field and then sought to bend the existing scholarship to support it. The goal was always to use what the existing literature offered to get some little bit of lunacy or depravity to be acceptable at the highest levels of intellectual respectability within the field. Therefore, each paper began with something absurd or deeply unethical, or both, that we wanted to forward or conclude. We then made the existing peer-reviewed literature do our bidding in the attempt to get published in the academic canon. This is the primary point of the project. What we just described is not knowledge production, it's sophistry. That is, it's a forgery of knowledge that should not be mistaken for the real thing. The biggest difference between us and the scholarship we are studying by emulation is that we know we made things up. This process is the one single thread that ties all 20 of our papers together even though we used a variety of methods to come up with the various ideas Da-da-da-da. sometimes we just thought a nutty or inhumane idea up and ran with it what if we write a paper saying we should train men like we do dogs to prevent rape culture hence came the dog park paper what if we write a paper claiming that when a guy privately masturbates while thinking about a woman without her consent in fact without her ever finding out about it that he's committing sexual violence against her That gave us the masturbation paper. What if we argue that the reason super intelligent AI is potentially dangerous is because it is being programmed to be masculinist and imperialist using Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Lacanian psychoanalysis? That's our feminist AI paper. What if we argued that a fat body is a legitimately built body, is a foundation for introducing a category for fat bodybuilding into the sport of professional bodybuilding? You can read how that went in fat studies. And Fat Studies is a—it's either a journal or the name of their article. It's, it's italicized. Okay, so I think I'll stop there so you folks get the idea. All right, so here's my, my big takeaway. They said it there. They said the biggest difference between us and the scholarship we are studying by emulation is that we know we made things up. And let me see. if There was another sort of money quote where they were trying to... Um, Okay, unfortunately, I think I must have looked at an earlier when they had an earlier one published or somebody else did, but I can't find it in this essay. But there was one part where at least one of them was saying something along the lines of, you know, look at this sentence that we included in this paper that got published. Now, that is absolutely meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. We didn't mean anything by it. We just assembled these phrases together with, you know, buzzwords and it got published. This is crazy, right? It was, it was something like that. And you know, anybody who tells you this means something is lying to you. And, and in general, when I saw people like libertarian types or just on the right in general, people who who hate social justice warriors, put it that way, when they when this story broke, they were they thought it was hilarious. They they were you know just jumping up and down, laughing with glee. Before I get into that, one last thing in terms of the news hook. So the other issue is what ended up happening in July of 2019. One of these people uh, works for for Portland State. So it's Peter Bagassian is a assi- uh, assistant professor of philosophy uh, at Portland State University. So he was the only one I believe with an academic post. And so, and the three of them said that they were they knew he was possibly going to get backlash when this thing went public. So, you know, there was, they opened an inquiry, blah, blah, blah. And there were some big guns that came out to defend him, including not just Jordan Peterson that might not surprise you, but I think also Richard Dawkins. And I believe Steven Pinker were saying, you know, come on, whether you think this was a good idea or not for them to do this, this hoax, you you can't punish this guy for that. But in any event, here's the letter from that the Portland State Administration sent to him, this is from Mark McClellan, Vice President for Research and Graduate Studies at Portland State. And so this is July of 2019. So remember, this stuff went public in October of 2018. Soon thereafter, I, I think it was in January, the U- Portland State officially opened an inquiry into this. And that's the point at which, you know, various big guns came out to defend this guy. And then by Jaloon, they, by, <laughs> I think I just combined June and July and said, Junoon, um, they had act, they concluded it. And so here is what they said in July of 2019. This is from the, that person from Portland State. Dear Dr. Bogassian, in the fall of 2018, I initiated a series of faculty examinations of your recent research. Those reviews included one, a review of animal subjects protection by our Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. I don't even know why they were involved. It might be because they had the fake article saying that someone went to a dog park and categorized all the different examples of dog humping and whether it was rape or not and you know how that was part of a masculine toxic culture and so forth. So I don't know if that's where the animal stuff came in. Two, a review of human subjects protection by our Institutional Review Board. And three, a review of my concerns over possible research misconduct, plagiarism, fabrication, and falsification and as examined by a committee, blah, 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 blah. So they found that there was no... Violation of the ethical treatment of animals and research. However, they did find, for the second one, specific findings of violations of human subjects' rights and protections. As a result of the positive findings of the violation of human subjects' protection, blah, 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 in summary, requires you to take training specified by the Director of Research Compliance prior to any future work regarding human subjects and banned you from any future human subjects' work until you take the aforementioned training and banned you from all sponsored research until you complete the required training. By this letter, I inform you my office is completed. Blah, 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 blah. So you are forbidden to engage in any human subjects-related research as a principal investigator, da-da-da-da. And then down a little further, you are forbidden to engage in any sponsored research as principal investigator, collaborator, contributor. This ban will remain in effect for as long as you work at PSU, that's Portland State University, or until you show evidence of understanding the protections afforded human subjects by this university, da da. Okay, so in case you got lost, and you're like, "What are you talking about? Do they do an experiment?" No, the experiment was the journal editors, and I guess the referees who got sent their fake submissions. Portland State was arguing that this guy Bagassian, by participating in this hoax where they sent you know under fake names articles that they thought were absurd to all these you know gender studies or whatever journals that therefore what they were actually doing was conducting an experiment that involved human subjects, namely the editors and referees at these journals. And they didn't, you know, before you do an experiment with human subjects, if you're working at a U.S. university, there's some kind of ethical review board that you got to run it by them just to make sure, you know, it it's doesn't violate any ethical rules. Okay. Because where that comes from, is you know, decades ago, you might've remembered if you've studied this stuff, like there were, experiments involving human subjects, th- things where they would do stuff like uh, make you think you were giving electric shocks to people, but really you weren't. and there's Things like that where later on, people started saying, you know, if you're using human subjects and you're using deception and stuff like that, and it might be traumatic, that maybe we should have some kind of ethical guidelines and maybe you got to get approval from a third party before you go, you know, we don't want our professors and our universities going out and doing experiments involving human subjects that might cause them trauma or something, or at the very least, you know, you got to run it by somebody first. So (laughs) Portland state was claiming that by them submitting these hoax articles to these journals, they were submitting the editors and referees to an experiment and they didn't first get permission from, you know, the ethical review board at the university. And so therefore now this guy's barred from leading any research until he goes undergoes the training. And, and from, the, from this letter, it doesn't seem like all he has to do is sit in his office and watch two hours of videos and then, you know, answer some questions or something to be multiple choice questions to, to prove that he watched the videos. And yes, I understand. I can't go give electric trucks to people without getting a review. It, it sounds more like, you know, he has to have his higher up sign off and say, okay, I'm, I think he learned his lesson now. So this seems like it's a pretty serious thing. And also, I couldn't find any follow-up news commentary. So I don't know if there have been any developments since July of 2019. So anyway, that's the resolution in terms of what ended up happening. So now let me circle back and talk about my overall reaction. Is that the people who are applauding it especially, they seem to think that, you know, the real zinger in all this is that the people writing the articles thought they were balderdash. They were intentionally trying to dream up crazy things that to them seemed like obvious parodies, and yet they got them published. And so, you know, that's the ha-ha, boom, checkmate, social justice warriors, you know, you, you leftist academics who are into this identity politics and stuff, boom, we just blew you up because we managed to publish these hoaxes. We don't actually believe this stuff. We think they're absurd, and yet we got it published. All right. and so that's the thing I want to unpack. That's what I want to focus on for this episode of The Bob Murphy Show. So basically, that's, that's really not, that doesn't prove much in and of itself. And so let me just give you some examples first in a different context. It's the most obvious one. In mathematics, believe it or not, there are certain techniques or concepts or even entire fields especially when they first started that not all mathematicians agreed was legitimate, right? So for example, there's what's in math, there's a technique that at least many mathematicians think is perfectly valid called a proof by contradiction. And so the idea is if you want to prove something is true, one way to do it is to assume it's not true and then show that that leads to a contradiction, and so then the idea is, OK, so if if we think mathematics as a whole is consistent, in other words, free from contradiction, then because we when we assume the opposite of this thing that we're actually trying to prove is true, that led to a contradiction, then that means the only way math is consistent is if that thing actually is true that we're that we were trying to prove. All right. Um, for those of you who subscribe to Tom Woods Liberty Classroom My course on the history of economic thought, the second part, I go through Arrow's impossibility theorem, right? Kenneth Arrow, he had real important work in what's called social choice theory. And so his most famous result there is what just was showing that there there does not exist a social welfare ordering that simultaneously obeys or respects all these different properties that you would think would be desirable. And so And one of the, one of the propositions was that it would be a dictator. Okay. And so, you know, that, that was one way of doing it, that it would show all the other three things imply a dictator. All right. So just in general, though, it's not that you're directly proving that the thing is true, or like if you're trying to prove that, oh, there, there exists some function that has these properties instead of finding it, you know, instead of finding a way to construct it, sometimes it's easier to do a proof by contradiction where you can, um, you know, say, oh, assume that this function couldn't exist. And then, you know, that leads to a contradiction. And so then you say, okay, so therefore it must exist. All right. So that's So again, a way of proving things is, but you assume the opposite and then show that that leads to a contradiction. So therefore, the thing you were trying to prove must be true. Okay, so I know that in the history of math, especially in the beginning, when that technique started to be used, there were mathematicians that recoiled from it. and they, At the very least, they thought it was inelegant. And I think some of them doubted whether it actually made sense, right? Because it seemed kind of weird that, oh, instead of you know, to prove that something exists instead of actually demonstrating its existence, instead of what you're doing is you're showing that its non-existence would imply a contradiction. And so you can see how some, you know, mathematicians might've thought, you know, that doesn't seem as solid. as just demonstrating the thing's existence de novo. Another example would be Cantor's diagonal argument where he was like showing the different hierarchy of the cardinality of sets. And I don't know. I was thinking about doing a Bob Murphy show on episode on this, kind of like I did with um, Girdles and Completeness Theorems to show Cantor's argument by which he proved there's an important sets in which the a number of real numbers between zero and one is bigger than. The number of integers, All right. And more specifically, he was showing that if you tried to take the set of all real numbers between zero and one and assign them in a one-to-one correspondence with the list of integers, you would never, there would always be a real number between zero and one that you, you missed in the list, All right. So anyway, that was his argument, and there were some mathematicians that just thought that was nutty. And they're like, no, that, that's not really math. That's, you know, that's science fiction or that's whatever, but that, that's crazy stuff. All right, so what, what I want to say is imagine a mathematician who thought, for example, that Cantor's work was crazy and this idea of different levels of infinity. Those are my words. I'm not saying that's the way actual mathematicians talk about it. Suppose a mathematician who actually thought all that stuff was bunk wrote up a valid proof in that system, right? And then sent it to a math journal. You know, it was, it was a novel demonstration and it proved some theorem that nobody had thought before. And it was interesting too. It wasn't like just some trivial thing. It was like, oh, wow, that's a surprising result. I didn't know that. And the, and the proof was valid, you know, in that framework. And so then they go ahead and publish it. And then the mathematician who doesn't believe in that technique goes public on his blog, and says, ha <laughs> those idiots. I actually don't believe that Cantor's work makes any sense. I don't, I don't, you know, infinity is infinity, or, or I don't believe in infinities. That's just, you know, because it involves limits and stuff. And I only, I'm a finitist when it comes to math. And so that paper should be retracted because it was a hoax. I just sent that just to prove to them I could play their stupid game, but actually I don't believe that stuff. That's crazy. So what I'm asking is, should the, should the journal retract it just because the guy said he actually was doing is it as a joke? And I think we could all agree the answer would be no. I mean, it's, they could go, you know, they might go double check the, the steps in the proof once they learn that the guy was a shyster and was doing a hoax just to make sure that step number four follows from step number three and so on. But assuming they check it out, they're like, no, this, this proof is valid. Then why wouldn't they leave it in there? right? It's it's a proof. It doesn't matter whether the person believes it or not. Uh, another example is Einstein famously, well, here, let me see what the Wikipedia entry is, and then I'll explain it. Okay. So it's called the EPR paradox. So I'm reading out from the Wikipedia entry. The Einstein-Podelsky-Rosen paradox is a thought experiment proposed by physicists Albert Einstein, Boris Podelsky, and Nathan Rosen, with which they argued that the description of physical reality provided by quantum mechanics was incomplete. In a 1935 paper titled, Can Quantum Mechanical Description of Physical Reality Be Considered Complete?, they argued for the existence of elements of reality that were not part of quantum theory and speculated that it should be possible to construct a theory containing them. Okay. The thought experiment involves a pair of particles prepared in an entangled state. Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen pointed out that in this state, if the position of the first particle were measured... The result of measuring the position of the second particle could be predicted. Da, 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 da. Okay, um, they argued that no action taken on the first particle could instantaneously affect the other, since this would involve information being transmitted faster than light, which is forbidden by the theory of relativity. All right, so the idea is when two particles become entangled in terms of quantum mechanics, um, and then you separate them by a, long, a large distance, if you go and try to measure the position or the momentum of the one particle. That has implications for what you can determine about the other particle, and it's instantaneous. And so Einstein and his two co-authors were advancing this as sort of a reductio ad absurdum. They were saying, you know, back when this was published in the 30s, in 1935, they were trying to show, hey, this emerging consensus on what quantum mechanics means you know, so in other words, they weren't denying what the experimental observations were showing. They were just saying the theory that's being constructed to explain this stuff and the deeper meaning behind it is crazy, they thought. And to try to illustrate why they thought this emerging view of quantum theory was crazy or interpretation, let's say, was crazy, is they were saying, if you guys were right in, what you're, in how you're saying quantum mechanics works, well, imagine we had two particles that became entangled and they didn't use that term. I think quantum entanglement came later. The, the term, and then you separate them by a big distance. If you guys were right, that means when we go to measure the position or the momentum of this one particle, instantaneously, that's going to have an effect on the other particle, even though it might be light years away at that point. And they thought, therefore, this can't be right because, as we all know, relativity teaches us that information cannot be transmitted faster than light. And yet, this is spooky action at a distance, which is impossible. All right, so it turns out, though, that not, I mean, that's partly, I think, how quantum computers are supposed to operate, and well, actually, that's probably not, scratch that. <laughs> There's a lot more involved with quantum computers than just that, but in any event, the point being, it's, it's not that the, they didn't win. Basically, the, the physics profession said, yeah, you're right. Quantum theory, the way we're developing it does imply that, and it, that can happen. So special relativity is wrong in that respect. And that's how things progressed, right? So I'm saying if the fact that they advanced that to show, you know, this, this is crazy, doesn't undo the fact that they actually were one of the first people to see the implications of quantum mechanics and to show, you know, if you entangle two particles and then separated them, quantum theory says that you could transmit information, right? So incidentally, I don't know enough about the history. I don't know if they were the first ones to come up with that. But my point being, that paper actually does make a contribution to the field. Even though they were intending it to show quantum theory can't be right, it doesn't matter what they thought. You know, in other words, it, it doesn't matter that their motives in writing up those implications was to show that the overall thing must be false. The point just being that when they worked out the implications of quantum theory, they were correct. All right, so I hope, I hope I've, I've given those two examples there to show that it's just because the author wants you to interpret something a certain way, you know, the work kind of stands on its own. The author's subjective intentions really don't matter that much. And so that was the, the number one thing that, that bothered me when people were high-fiving, as it were, these hoaxers. Okay, now let me come at it a different angle too, and so here I, I was wrong. What, what I thought I was going to do here in terms of the, my contribution, besides just me making these sort of abstract points, is I wanted to go look up and show that if you went to the issues that published these articles you know, in, the, in the journals, that these articles that the hoaxers submitted were not qualitatively different from the other ones. And by the way, the, the three of them they sort of admit that I I actually read it to you before when I was kind of speed reading through the opening where they were saying that um, while our papers are all outlandish or intentionally broken in significant ways, it is important to recognize that they blend in almost perfectly with others in the disciplines under our consideration. Okay. So there, I just want to point out that that undercuts what they thought they were achieving. All right. So, you know, pushed to its logical extreme. suppose in the the journal issue where they got the dog they, you know, I think the dog park, one is the mo- is the most uh, standout of these things because because it's just so absurd that <laughs> that the the person said, I spent hours at a dog park classifying all the times when one dog would hump another to see if it was rape or not, you know, and then tying that to the broader context of our oppressive patriarchal society and stuff like that, right? So that's just obviously, patently absurd right but suppose every other article in that journal issue had been equally absurd so my point is if that were the case then the fact that they got this one published really wouldn't prove much right because it, there it's just saying like the the self-evident absurdity of it to the extent that what these people authors are saying these hoaxes are saying is they blend in almost perfectly with others in the disciplines so it's sort of like okay so then what do you what are you contributing then with this hoax project, right? If your paper isn't really, you know, if it blends right in with the other ones, the mere absurdity in your view of the paper doesn't add anything if the other articles in the same issue, for example, were just about equally absurd, right? If you're just using your own opinion that this is crazy, how could anyone believe this crap? well, couldn't you just do that for the published ones where the authors weren't intending it as a hoax? And again, just my earlier point, because as we've seen, the mere subjective intention of the submitting author by itself doesn't really mean anything one way or the other. It certainly wouldn't in a rigorous field like math, for sure. If if something's a proof mathematically, whether or not the person who wrote it thinks it's valid doesn't really matter. What matters is, to the practicing body of mathematicians who subscribe to that journal, for example, do they think it's a valid proof? And if they do, well, then it's a valid proof, or at least it's just as valid as anything else would be that those same, you know, community of mathematicians would sign off on. Okay, so I would have had a great example, right, to prove that, and what I wanted to do was go in and then look at the other articles published in that same issue of that journal, but I have to admit, <laughs> my my hunch, my idea for a really uh, interesting episode because of that angle d- didn't pan out. And so let me just admit, even though I was hoping it would be the other way around, that no, their article was clearly head and shoulders more ridiculous than the other articles, right? So let me just read to you the abstract of their article, and then I'll read you some of the other abstracts just to show you what I mean. Okay, so where this dog park one got published was in the journal gender place and culture a journal of feminist geography okay and the name the title of their article was human reactions to rape culture and queer performativity at urban dog parks in portland oregon and so and so they it got published in well actually i think what's going on here what i'm looking at is the retraction okay so Maybe, let me see, dun, dun, dun. okay, it might have been that the, other, the ones I looked at didn't run in the, with the original article, but were r- running in the same issue as the retraction appeared in. But in any event, it, subject to that, perhaps tweak, the other articles in that particular issue that I looked at clearly weren't even in the same ballpark as this thing. All right, so let me just read a little bit. So this is the abstract from the hoax article. And it's a little bit hard because there's a big retracted written diagonally across the abstract. So some of these words I'm going to have trouble, to But anyway, it goes like this. This article addresses questions in human geography and the geographies of sexuality by drawing upon one year of embedded in-situ observations of dogs and their human companions at three public dog parks in Portland, Oregon. The purpose of this research is to uncover emerging themes in human and canine interactive behavioral patterns in urban dog parks to better understand human, uh, and I can't read it because it's covered up, decision-making in public places and uncover bias and emergent assumptions around gender, race, and sexuality. Specifically, in order of priority, I examine the following questions. One, how do human companions manage, contribute, and respond to violence in dogs? Two, what issues surround queer performativity in human reactions to, I think it says non-consensual sex between and among dogs? And three, do dogs suffer oppression based upon perceived gender something by applying black feminist criminology categories through which my observations can be understood to be transferring from lessons relevant to human and dog interactions to suggest practical applications that disrupt hegemonic masculinities and improves access to emancipatory spaces? Okay, so, you know, you can see how that's ridiculous. And then in the article itself, there's some really funny things in there that a lot of the write-ups, you know, for the popular culture and whatnot, when they, when people who thought this, this hoax was hilarious wanted to show, look at what these hoaxsters got published in an actual peer-reviewed journal that's got a decent ranking, at least, in this in these disciplines, there were some hilarious quotes from the article. Okay, so... Fair enough. And so, like I said, I looked for some other articles in this same journal, Gender, Place, and Culture, a journal of feminist geography. And th- they're not, like I said, they're still, you know, gobbledygook if that's the way you interpreted this kind of stuff. But they're not anywhere near l- you, you. In other words, if, if, you, if I gave you a list of the abstracts and I told you one of these is a hoax or, you know, one of these is a parody and the other ones are real, which is which, you probably would have had any trouble picking out the hoax or the, or the parody. That, that's what I'm trying to get across. Um, let me see, should I read? Let me just give you an example. Um, so one of them was called Experiencing and Embodying Anxiety in Spaces of Academic and Social Research. And so here's the abstract of this one. This article explores how anxiety and its bodily effects influences the experience of encounters within and around research spaces. Throughout, I offer up auto-ethnographic excerpts from field notes which contextualize my experience of anxiety while undertaking social geographical research through these vignettes i ask what does embodying anxiety in academic and research spaces feel like how can we understand conceptualize and attach meaning to forces which influence how researchers experience anxiousness and what opportunities for reflexive research practice and critical knowledge production might be created by attending to the bodies and embodied experiences of anxious researchers. Responding to these questions, I position anxiety as an affective state, which, as deeply embroiled within the body and subject position of researchers experiencing anxiety, cannot be disentangled from the socio-materiality of research spaces. Recognizing the relationship between anxiety and researchers' capacities to feel embodied ease in academic life, I encourage readers to reflect on their own experiences of anxiousness, folding these into their reflexive practices, writings, and research outputs. I conclude by urging researchers to continue to both recognize the messy realities of researcher positionality through a feminist approach attentive to the specificities of researching bodies and move beyond privileging and perpetuating the fallacy of a detached and always already stable researcher, tropes which continue to pervade and are consciously privileged within academic spheres." Doing so, I argue, could enable researchers to push against the boundaries of what is deemed acceptable to feel and embody in an academia. All right, so there, but you know, it seems almost like a waste of time. And Jeez, I can't believe someone bothered writing this, but it's, it's not obviously crazy the way, you know, some of this other stuff was. Let's see, uh, I'll, I'll read one more from the same journal. The title is Organizing for Collective Feminist Killjoy Geographies in a U.S. University. And so the word killjoy is just one word. Amid broader discussions of the continuities of racism and sexism on campuses in the United States, we bring together Sarah Ahmed's, so that's a person, notion of the feminist killjoy with intersectional feminist geographers' focus on the politics of knowledge production to suggest that the academic department is a key site for anti-racist feminist intervention, Specifically, we survey our organizing experiences of members of Women in Geography, and so that's capitalized, that's like a group, W-I-G, Women in Geography, at UW-Madison, a long-standing group that supports female, non-binary, and genderqueer graduate students, faculty, and staff affiliated with geography. We argue that departmentally situated groups, such as W-I-G, can cultivate anti-racist feminist praxis as collective feminist killjoys, through diverse tactics that identify multiple points for intervention. In this paper, we focus on two specific tactics that WIG developed between 2016 and 2019, which include organizing feminist academic professional development activities and conducting a climate survey for geography graduate students. Critically reflecting on WIG's interventions in academic professionalization and climate, we find that a collective feminist killjoy orientation facilitates recognition of and intervention in shared and differential precarity. So that's P-R-E-C-A-R-I-T-Y. All right. So there again, not something that is particularly interesting to me, but I understand what they're saying. And, you know, with a little bit of the jargon, you'd have to go look up exactly what is a feminist killjoy. I didn't know exactly what they're talking about, but presumably that means something. You can understand what they're talking about. Right. So, Again, let me, I'm, I'm admitting here, my, my experiment failed. <laughs> I thought I was going to go in and show that, no, I mean, this stuff is, you know, what they did is absurd, but come on, this whole field is crazy. And it turns out that actually, generally speaking, if you go grab a particular issue from this journal that published this crazy dog park article, the other articles, even though they have some of those buzzwords and whatever, the abstract at least is coherent. You understand what it's trying to say. And so... So anyway, you you can take that for what it's worth, and I, I, I so I think that does it's it's interesting like that. On the one hand, that's good for the field, and then bad for the, but also good for the hoaxers, right? That so the fact that actually the general articles aren't nearly as crazy as these parodies, I guess, shows that's good, right? <laughs> that the field's not as crazy as the parody suggests, but then it also does show that the parody did achieve a a purpose, right? That they were able to publish something that really is qualitatively more ridiculous than what the rank and file papers are in these journals, at least, or at least the one that I went through. All right, so that's, so there you go. I I basically just did that just to report on my results. Like I said, it would have been better for my hunch if it had gone the other way. Hey, everybody, let's take a break from my discussion of the grievance studies hoax to remind you that I do not do regular commercials here on the Bob Murphy Show. I rely on support from listeners like you, and so if you want me to increase the number of episodes, remember I recently said if I can get 300 of you to do a $12 monthly pledge, then I can go ahead and expand and do three episodes a week. Works out to a dollar an episode. Or if you want to do less than that, of course, I'm happy to take any amount of money you want to hand over. Please go to BobMurphyShow.com/slash/contribute. Every little bit helps. Thanks, everybody. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, so why don't I try this? I got two more main points I want to make here, like two two sections or topics. Perhaps the way to get across where I'm thinking about this and like trying to assess is this a problem or not is I asked myself, would Austro-libertarianism be susceptible to a hoax like this? And I think if I just talk through this element of it, uh, you folks will at least see where I'm coming from better. And, and maybe some of my earlier remarks, if it surprised you or you weren't sure what I was trying to say, maybe this will flesh it out. Okay, so let's suppose that all of a sudden Stefan Kinsella announced to the world and said, <laughs> fooled you. I cannot believe you idiots fell for this stuff. I have convinced plenty of top-name libertarians, theorists even that there's no such thing as intellectual property, that that's a completely illegitimate topic. You idiots, I work on IP. You really think I don't believe in it? You idiots, I can't believe you're just a bunch of dupes. I can't believe I tricked you all into not believing. I mean, look at Murray Rothbard believed in some version of IP, and yet I've convinced all of you idiots who claim to be Rothbardians not to believe in it. Ha, ha, ha. And and suppose, to prove it, Stefan like, Get something that was sealed somehow, you know, however you want to make up some fictitious thing by which Stefan could demonstrate that he actually wrote this letter and sealed it and had some third party hold it right when he first submitted, uh, you know, his against IP manuscript, right? To show this wasn't some recent change of heart or he's not just joking us now, but to show from the beginning and said, "I am now embarking on my plan to try to hoodwink the libertarian community into thinking there's no such thing as IP. You watch this, folks. I'm actually going to get them. I mean, don't they realize you need IP for there to be medical research? Why would anybody write a hit song if they couldn't, you know, if it could just be pirated? What the hell, you idiots? Who would make a movie if it could just be pirate? All right. So suppose he wrote, wrote all that stuff up, and so he could prove that all along he didn't believe in this crap, and he just thought this was ridiculous." So my question is, should we feel embarrassed? And I would say, no. That you know, Stefan's arguments are what convinced me. It wasn't because it was his name. It wasn't that, you know, he's my oracle. I would say, well, even if you didn't believe it and you you were doing it as a parody, Stefan, your arguments to show how you know standard Rothbardian property rights theory only applies to scarce things and Ideas aren't scarce and blah, 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 you know, all his arguments that he advances, I, I would say, no, that's those are valid reasons. Whether or not you intended it seriously or sincerely, or you meant it as a as a joke or as a hoax, I don't care. You're right. Or or <laughs> the arguments that you wrote in that article were correct. Right. So that's you know, that's how, how I would handle that. And I and I don't think we would have to be embarrassed that we published that stuff and that we believed in it and it changed our minds. Incidentally, I can't resist. For years, one of my running jokes about Scott Sumner is that at some point he's going to say, got you. I can't believe I convinced all these free market libertarian types that the problem from 2008 onward was that the Federal Reserve had a really tight monetary policy. And I came up with a bunch of definitions by which even though the Fed quadrupled the monetary base in a couple of years or whatever it was. And even though M1 started rising rapidly, even though the original monetarism, right, because Scott's market monetarism, even though like Milton Friedman said, oh yeah, the problem in the 30s was that M1 and M2 both declined, right? The Fed didn't inflate enough with the base to offset the declines in M1 and M2 caused by the public withdrawing money from the banks. And so, okay, so that would mean if you thought the Fed was tight, not in, during the Great Recession. That means what? M one and M two were dropping? No, they weren't. They were increasing, right? So, what if Scott Sumner came out and just <laughs> said, "I fooled all you? How in the world? When I, you know, when the opposite of what Friedman said happened in the '30s happened, you all went along with me when I convinced you that this was market monetarism, and that the Fed actually had a really tight policy, even though interest rates went down to zero, the monetary base quadrupled, M one started rising at a much more rapid pace. Blah 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 blah. So I would say he would have a much better claim to having tricked everybody with a hoax. To be clear, I'm I'm kidding. I'm saying that to be funny and provocative. I don't think Scott Sumner is hoaxing us. I'm just saying if he were, it would be a much better hoax than Stefan Kinsella. Could have pulled off. All right. Now, suppose instead, the Journal of Libertarian Studies had published an article or the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, let's say, had published an article by somebody and maybe I, you know, maybe I was the referee on it and it's, and uh, what it claimed was it was a empirical work supporting the Rothbardian approach to military defense. And the article started out and it gave some boilerplate, you know, literature citing talking about Rothbard's work and, you know, Hoppe's on the private production of defense and, you know, maybe my stuff on chaos theory or something and just, you know, went through and just, you know, gave the framework that many libertarians in the Rothbardian tradition claim that the uh, privatization logic can be pushed not only to include roads and mail delivery, but even police and even, believe it or not, military defense, and da 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 da, da. and some explicitly use Mises' calculation argument, da, da, da. And then in this paper, I interview, and suppose what they claimed was they tracked down 103 Uh, Marines who had served in Fallujah, you know, working for the U.S. government, the actual Marines, but also then worked for private military contractors in the same region. And suppose it surveyed them and asked them a bunch of questions along the lines of, you know, which which enterprise do you think use resources more efficiently? And blah, blah, blah. And and it found that, whatever I said, the 103 they surveyed, uh, 92 said that the private companies used their their budgets more rationally or efficiently um whereas you know the marines wasted all kinds of money in terms of you know military spending that didn't make any sense and eight were uh not sure and only whatever what's what i say 92 something like 3 whatever the balance is only three out of the hundred and three said that the Marines spent the money more efficiently. And then, on top of that, suppose I, as the reviewer, had said, "Wow, this is fascinating stuff. Can you get can you try to besides this survey, can you try to get more um, specifics? you know, like like are there any a- anecdotes so the, so the the surveys great, you know, the raw statistics, but can you also just you know, I think it would be really interesting for this article and a kind con- different contribution that our readers would really love can you get any of these people you interviewed to give you some specifics? Just to, you know, to give an example, what do you mean when you say, and then, oh, and so then the person after the revise and resubmit sent it in and said, okay, yes, I I tracked down and and three of them got back to me before I, you know, needed to return this to you. And, um, you know, and they had just really great examples of how the Marines, like, would spend money doing one thing and then next week spend money to undo the first thing, you know, that kind of stuff where it was totally counterproductive. And whereas, you know, the structure in the the private security firm, you know, allowed the people on the ground to make decisions and maybe there was profit sharing and bonuses, you know, just real anecdotes that really just lined up with, you know, oh yeah, that's exactly what I would want to see as somebody who believes in private military defense. Okay. So we go ahead and publish the article and then the author reveals six months later, that actually Brad DeLong. And he wrote under a fake name and he just completely made up all those statistics and just dreamed up out of whole cloth those anecdotes that he had attributed to, you know, former Marines and private military contractors. And he just, and he said, can you believe this? These people, there's this field out there, of these quote scholars, some of whom actually work and, you know, are tenured at decent universities, believe it or not. Who actually believe with a straight face that free markets can work not just for soup and not just even for healthcare, God help us, but actually think that tanks and bombers should be produced by private companies with private shareholders. And, that, and that's, you know, let's just let the profit and loss calculation guide who gets to hold nuclear weapons. Can you imagine these nut jobs? And look, at, I proved how nutty they were because I just whipped together this article and l- look at the comments in the revise and resubmit from the referee. He wasn't falling over because I had the audacity to suggest that private military contractors in the Middle East could be more economically efficient than the U.S. Marines, even though, you know, that should have been a red flag right there, such a, an absurd proposition. I can't, but no, the referee just had some quibbles about, can you give us me more anecdotes and um, you know, you make this one claim here and I'm not sure that's supportable, but but other than that, he was very enthusiastic. I mean, besides me getting this paper published, just the attitude of the referee, what the so suppose I'm the referee there, would I be embarrassed? No, I would say, you know, the contribution of his paper was stuff he just made up. That's why we published it. If he had just written 10 pages saying Rothbard's awesome, privatize the military go markets laissez-faire for the win we wouldn't have published that that wouldn't have been a contribution the alleged contribution of this paper was stuff that he's now admitting he just made up and so yeah the peer review system relies on the basic honesty of the researchers and if someone's just going to completely make up stuff yeah there's a chance it's going to slip through so it's true i perhaps should have as a referee engaged in more due diligence, and maybe I should have tried to Google a little bit. And, you know, obviously, it's hard for me to defend my actions because I don't have the hypothetical <laughs> paper to be able to say what got through my defenses, if you get what I'm saying. But, you know, that's, that's standard. You, you as, a, as a referee don't assume that every paper that's submitted to you is constructed out of deliberately falsified data, okay? And maybe you should, but that's just not how it works at least not in the social sciences you know i don't know if, if in medicine if they have you know higher standards or something because the stakes are higher i don't know but certainly that's not what happens in the social sciences if you're skeptical of course you can go ahead and google around and it's i think it's possible for sure i'm i'm almost positive i've done this in the past where i've been refereeing an article and if i thought that the writer the author was misrepresenting what somebody else said, I might go look up the citation to see, you know, the actual source, then to see if the person who paraphrased what the source contained actually did a good job, right? So I'm pretty sure I've done that on occasion, but that's only because I got suspicious for other reasons. It's not that as a matter of course, I go and check every reference, all right, to see if it exists. Now, what might happen, depending on the outlet, if during the copy editing phase, you could get caught there too, right? So there's another line of defense if someone really is just making something up that even if the referee doesn't catch it, if the, if the you know, the end notes and stuff or the, the references aren't in the exact right uh, format, then maybe like the copy editor will realize, well, wait a minute, I went to go see, you know, what page, what the page numbers were for this particular article. And it turns out the article doesn't exist, right? So you could get caught that way too. But in any event, I, I hope you folks at home get what I'm saying. That if Brad DeLong did that, that really wouldn't embarrass me. That would just, I think, look bad on him. Uh, because again, it's it's certainly true to say if someone just wrote an article containing a bunch of buzzwords about privatize the military, Rothbard's great, blah, 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 and sent that, I would say, no, there's no contribution here. And I would re- you know recommend that it get rejected. The only way he would publish something like that is if he made stuff up. And again, the, the difference between that and Stefan Kinsella's IP stuff is Stefan's article didn't rely on empirical evidence. It was just the cogency of his arguments, which doesn't depend on whether he actually believes it or not. It's just, is that a good argument or not? So it's more like a math proof, okay? So when it comes to the dog park one, that's why it got published because the person was you know was claiming that they had spent a year Sitting in various dogs, I think three of them in the Portland area, surveying <laughs> various instances of what might be classified as dog rape with, you know, the dogs attacking each other and whatever. And so that was what the editors and the referees thought was the contribution was that quantitative research that the author just totally made up. So on that one, it's, you know, it's not obvious why that's supposed to be embarrassing. But yeah, if you can make up a bunch of stuff, you can get it published. And that just shows that you know this dishonesty can proceed for a bit. Some some further remarks on that stuff. So so let me mention that um, I think at least for part of it, two other elements here are that apparently for at least some of the articles, they use some kind of um, like algorithm, like in other words, like an automated computer program that would just generate gobbledygook phrases, you know, they had feminist buzzwords and stuff in it. And so to the extent that that's true, and I don't know how true it is, you know, meaning like how much do they use that? How much does that affect these that got published? Then yeah, that's, that is disturbing. Because like I said, that's certainly not something that we in the Austro-Libertarian community would be vulnerable to if somebody, like I said, just grabbed a bunch of essays and then generated a quote random uh, bot generated JLS submission and I was the referee on it you know it, unless it was just a freaky thing where it happened to coincidentally advance a novel argument that was sound in which case I would say okay well I don't care if you use a computer to generate this is a good argument and so we got lucky the, the, <laughs> the monkeys accidentally typed up Shakespeare so there's that element and then apparently on one of them they took passages from Mein Kampf and just changed it you know, instead of railing against Jewish people, they were railing against the patriarchy or something. And so that's kind of awkward, all right? So that one, you know, you can do what you want. Although even there, I mean, you could take a a speech, you know, you you could take just about anything that was written like for feminists or for people of color, let's say, and just flip it to be defending men or defending white people, and it would sound horribly sexist and racist. So that, I mean, the fact that you could do it with Hitler, okay, I guess it's awkward, but it's like, you know, in the grand scheme, like I said, these groups that claim racism is only possible against people who don't have power and reverse racism is literally impossible. You know, I don't know how embarrassed they're going to be by, oh yeah, if you took Hitler and, and changed it, so what? And then the last thing I'll mention here is in terms of trying to get a handle on, you know, how big of an accomplishment or what, what's the significance of this hoax enterprise. Keep in mind that only seven out of 20 of the papers were accepted. Now, partly that's perhaps because they had to end the project early, right? Because the Wall Street Journal person figured it out and they went public with it. So maybe that number would have been higher, you know, had this thing played out. But still, the fact that they wrote up 20 hoax articles and only could get seven of them published you know, arguably that shows that the fields weren't that vulnerable to the hoax attempts. And the other thing too is, put it to you this way, it would be virtually impossible for someone to just decide, you know what, I really think that physics is a joke. I'm going to go, you know, submit a hoax article about, on physics to a high-ranking journal, and unless it was just because you made up a bunch of data, but, it, you know, if you, or, or, yeah, I'll just keep doing that example if it weren't based on just fraudulent data, but, you know, you did some other, like it was a th- more of a theoretical thing, like a new way for calculating in, in, in string theory, like a, a way to simplify the computations and you can solve these problems in 20% less computer processing time. And it was, you know, a valid thing, which you thought it was goofy. There's no way you're just going to be dabbling and, and do that, right? Because that's a very rigorous field and you can't just breeze right in. So part of what, this apparently shows is that these fields aren't very rigorous, right? If these outsiders can just waltz in. But then even there, well, wait a minute, hang on. That apparently, at least this one guy, Lindsay, he claimed that he was spending 90 hours a week on this project when it was in full swing. And he had funding from a group of donors that, you know, are re- remaining anonymous, that he's not divulging who they were. All right. So, you know, he apparently shared the project idea with some people. They thought it was a great idea and they paid him, you know, they supported him while he did this and he devoted, he says, 90 hours a week to it. So, you know, that, I, I don't know what we're supposed to conclude from that. I mean, on the one hand, it's almost like, geez, you, you could have done something useful with that amount of time, right? You're obviously a very smart person, you know, very creative. So again, with all this stuff, it's not like they just took two weekends whipped up 20 articles, threw in a bunch of, you know, buzzwords, and then fired them off, and then seven got accepted. They really try. And and also, like they said, you know, they were, they were trying to show, remember when the stuff I read to you in the beginning of this episode, it was like, well, what we did is we had some ideas. And first, we had to read the literature to see what kinds of things got published. And then we had to take our idea and, you know, figure out how could we construct it, embed it in an article submission, such that it fit in with with the genre you know that it that it was appropriate that it was a peer among the articles being published in this journal even though you know it it stood apart a little bit and so i want to say okay congratulations you just described how academic publishing works that's what you that's what, that's what it means to become a researcher you have ideas like that's what draws you to a field like you know you jeez i I want to understand the business cycle. So I'm going to go major in economics. I'm going to go to grad school. And now I got to do a dissertation. Well, what do you got to do? Well, you can't just write it up from scratch. First, go immerse yourself in the literature. See what other people are saying about the business cycle. And then figure out what your idea is and what your unique contribution is. And then write it in such a way that it looks like you're in the same community. And you're using their language and try to get it published. And (laughs) that's what they did. So the fact that deep down you don't believe in business cycles, well, I don't know what to tell you. All right. So anyway, I'll wrap up there. I think I've made my points. And my my goal here was not to get you to think like if you originally thought the hoax, hoaxers were hilarious. I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I'm not trying to be a masculine killjoy. I'm not trying to wag my finger and say, shame on you. You should not have laughed at that. That's not what I'm trying to do. It was just... Again, the the big thing was it seemed like when this story broke, most people assumed that the mere intentions of the hoaxers was all you needed to know to realize they had really zinged these journals. And you know, to me, no, that that really isn't a big deal. It, it has more to do with the rigor and so on. And then, like I said, this other information about spending nine hours a week and you know having to do revise and resubmits and only getting seven out of the twenty. 20- it, it's not as obvious what this established. But again, the points in favor of this hoax having achieved something concrete and that this really did prove something was that, like I admitted, <laughs> at least the, the dog park one And then when I went and checked and then I stopped because I, my hunch was wrong, that yeah, the dog park one, that clearly was head and shoulders crazier than the other stuff that that journal regularly publishes. So they did managed to get something really goofy through the defenses of the journal. But again, on the other hand, and I realize I'm being a classic economist and I keep going back and forth, even there, they might have, you know, the editors might have realized or the referees might have realized, yeah, this is kind of a provocative topic, but look at all this field work the person did. This is valuable data that others might be able to use too. And so, and since that was all made up, you know, <laughs> let, let me put it to you this way. If that dog park if the, if the person really had gone out and done that research and then sent it in, to me, it wouldn't be outlandish if the journal editor and the referees said, yeah, this is a valid article. We're not retracting it. I don't care if it was a hoax as long as this data is legit. You know, it's, it's out there now. Now it's in the, actually it's added to our human knowledge on the, the patriarchy. So that, that again would not have been, and, and you might say, no, come on, that's crazy. Well, right, but we didn't need the hoax to tell us these fields were crazy, right? If you already know that the idea that, you know, a male student should sit there and apologize for being male and have everyone in the class, you know, call them names and they sit on the floor wearing chains or whatever, if you, if you already know that's absurd, okay, but then by the same token, the stuff that really does get published sincerely, you also know is absurd, right? So in any event, I'm just trying to... Uh sharpen our understanding of these issues and just to clarify thinking of it and with that i will see you next time you've just experienced another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls for more information and to subscribe to this podcast visit BobMurphyShow.com.